State of Affairs with me, Kieran Deneen. I'm your host, and we are here live in UCC 98.3 FM, as always, here on UCC's campus. But you can catch up uh, on today's episode via Spotify as a podcast uh, later this evening or maybe tomorrow. Today, I'm joined in studio by Charlie Power and Adam Hallisey. While uh, in a few minutes, we're, we're going to go to a conversation I had yesterday with Anya O'Neill and Ben Quigley in uh, France. Uh, but we'll come to the present first. Charlie, how are you? I'm very well, Ben. How's things? Very Watch good, very good. And Adam, apologies. yourself? Flying it, flying it. Uh, I hear you uh, held Paddy Power to kind of some Twitter gunpoint uh, the other day, Adam, looking for your money on the on the election, did you? Yeah, well, the few times you have um, what we describe as a betting victory, it's 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 nice to get paid out. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> uh, did you have any... I know you had a bit of skin in the game as well, Charlie. You had backed Trump early in the year. I don't know if you actually changed your vote or uh, betting position on that or did you stick to your guns? Or No, I didn't do uh, any flip-flop in any way. I went down with a sinking ship and a few side bets with pints and so forth, but uh, <laughs> I've never been happier to lose a bet anyway, Kieran. <laughs> and uh, are you winning any pints though or did you have no, states on the line? Or I, I uh, lost a couple of pints to Hallisey unfortunately oh, but no. that'll be settled at a later date I'd say yeah yeah or yeah, you're hardly going to have cans of Guinness or anything like that no I think we'll hold off till the real deal uh, l- listen uh, we actually um, I spoke with Anya and Ben about Leo Varadkar uh, and I just wanted to maybe get a quick sentence or two from the both of you uh, on, where, on what you think was going to happen um, with the whole story, I mean, today we saw the mm-hmm. Village magazine have come out and said that uh, uh, Leo and Matthew O'Toole, Dr. Matthew O'Toole, met on several occasions. I think it was 10 in 2019, um, w- w- whereas Leo had said maybe two or three times a year as friends. What happens in the next couple of weeks, Adam? Yeah, well, I think we're more likely to see kind of um, some political outcomes uh, emerge from this situation as opposed to any tangible outcomes in terms of a a switch in personnel or anything. Um, I mean, it was kind of a smart move in Sinn Féin to call the vote of no confidence in the sense that uh, Fianna Fáil and the Green Party would have been happy enough to see Leo taken down a peg um, uh, particularly since him and Fianna Gael were so high-flying in the polls without collapsing the government. The issue they now face, of course, is having to tomorrow support Leo and his actions. And so in any eventual general election we see um, uh, sooner rather than later, you're going to have questions come from opposition parties as to why um, Fianna Fáil and the Green Party felt justified in defending Leo Varadkar's uh, Actions, so no change in personnel, but definitely a change in the sort of political paradigm that we face in any future general election. Mm, interesting. Any any thoughts, Charlie? Uh, yeah, just echo quite a lot of what 
Adam has just said. Um, interesting to see that Jim O'Callaghan sort of, um, I suppose, differed from Michal Martin's stance in it, like openly criticising. Um, but other than that, as in, we just have to wait and see how it plays out, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And it's very unlike Jim O'Callaghan to, to disagree with Michal Martin these days. Um, listen, we're, we're going to come back and chat all things about America and everything that's happened there in the course of the last week. Uh, but first, I'm going to head over to Anya and Ben, where we discussed uh, things a little closer to home, re- Leo Varadkar. And uh, it was also interesting to chat to Ben about France and the situation there with the uh, following recent horrific terrorist attacks and uh, Macron's stance on it. So we're going to head over to them right now. Confidential cabinet information. Not, 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 nothing of, of this nature, Deputy. Um, it, I, it depends on what, what you mean, what you mean, Deputy. I, I don't think confidential cabinet information, no, but there isn't a person in this house, and let's be honest about it, that doesn't speak to journalists off the record or, uh, you know, uh, that's, that, that's, but, but confidential cabinet information, no. What, uh, first of all, I asked, have you ever leaked confidential cabinet information? And I'd like that address if that's right. Uh, confidential, no. That was Leo Varadkar semi-stumbling to a question from leader of A2, Pader Tobin, there in the Dáil last week. Varadkar faced a barrage of uh, queries from opposition TDs in response to an expose by Village magazine who revealed that the former Taoiseach uh, leaked confidential information relating to GP contracts with the former president of the National Association of General Practitioners, uh, Dr. Matthew O'Toole. The Taunishta's friendship with O'Toole was the main uh, point of controversy and Sinn Féin now um, intend to table a motion of no confidence in him. Varadkar denies leaking information for personal gain, um, but has admitted that it was perhaps the wrong thing to do. Here to discuss the issue is Anya O'Neill and Ben Quigley. Um, Anya, I'll go to you first. The Taunishta has over the years developed an art uh, of standing in the doll under scrutiny, um, but performing well under pressure, in my opinion. I thought that he looked visibly shook and a little bit shaky. Would you agree? I would completely agree because I think what that clip showed was something maybe somewhat unrelated to the issue of the documents about the NAGP leaked to Matthew O'Toole. That focused to me, that signaled, which I don't think we needed proof on, that Leo is leaking things from cabinet. And I think the fact that his biographer, Philip Ryan, often has the information first, gave us a big clue about this already. But yeah, I think definitely he looked uh, shaken, but I think for a while people had suspected he was leaking anyway. So, yeah, and he really, you know, I would kind of see him as someone like David Cameron, who at the dispatch box was was very quick witted. Um, and I think it was it was quite surprising to see him in that situation. But such was the seriousness of it, maybe. So, so far, um, Fianna Fáil and the Greens haven't thrown Leo under the bus yet does that show a strategic attitude maybe towards um, this as opposed to maybe a a tactical one because they know that Leo is going to be Taoiseach in a couple of years time and even this motion of no no confidence from Sinn Féin isn't going to change that so you know from as a prominent member of the Fianna Fáil party on you what's your inside scoop on this 
Well, I think what's interesting is uh, one point that uh, really stood out for me was on the week in politics this weekend, uh, Robert Troy, the junior minister in the department, in Leo's department for enterprise, I believe, uh, said that the issue is the only punishments available at the moment for government ministers uh, are basically losing the whip or resignation. And I don't think this warranted resignation. I really don't think it did. I think it is a problem. But ultimately, is it worth bringing down the government over? No. So therefore, I do think while I don't think people have confidence in Leo completely, I don't think you can bring down the government over this. So I do think they will vote uh, in favour of Leo Varadkar. And, and maybe does the situation suit Fianna Fáil and the Greens maybe because there's an element of you know, maybe taking Leo down a peg or two because he has, as we as we say, he's probably been the person that has has been leaking information, re-enfish, um, over the last few few months. Um, hashtag Leo the leak, obviously doing the rounds on Twitter, um, and of course, you know, he's kind of coming out, and people are still getting mixed up between who's actually the real Taoiseach. Will the real Taoiseach please stand up? Uh, to to maybe quote an Eminem song, um. <laughs> From 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 that point of view, is this a is this actually a real opportunity for Fianna Fáil and for the Greens to say, hold your horses there now, Leo. Your reputation is taking a bit of a hit. We're not going to throw you out, but you're going to have to stay a bit quiet for now. Well, I think it definitely could have been like that before this motion of no confidence, Kieran. But the problem is, this what Sinn Féin have done here, this political move, is basically targeting Fianna Fáil far more than it is Fianna Gael because it's fine for Fine Gael TDs to be in support of Leo Varadkar, but it's a lot harder for Fianna Fáil TDs to do that in the in light of this. But as I said, not worth bringing down the government over, in my opinion. But you're right, it might have started out that way, that this was going to, as you said, bring him down a peg or two. But I think this motion of no confidence has changed that a lot. And the fact that they have had to stick up for him, it was either publicly go against him or stick up for him and neither are ideal really so I think it hasn't it hasn't had the effect that they might have wanted Ben you're over in France and we're going to come to France in a while and talk about th- things that are happening there at the moment but for now you can't escape Irish politics um, Varadkar denies wrongdoing in, in we'll say the sense of corruption um, but he went about this perhaps the wrong way didn't he or, or do you think that yeah passing on information in this way is necessary for important uh, political decisions to actually be made? Um, well, I think that Leo's come out and accepted that his practices were improper, as have the majority of the government. Um, I would say that in order to keep things, I think, I think that things should be kept uh, generally above board, but it's kind of we're seeing a lot. I mean, it's got it's it's a lot more than just Leo leaking information within this government, as has become apparent of late. Um, and um, you know, like the I don't. I think the response uh, on the, on behalf of Sinn Fein to the leak is just completely and utterly disproportionate to the act that was carried out. Um, I mean, Sinn Fein are no strangers now at this stage to lodging um, motions of no confidence against government ministers. Uh, as has been seen with um, Simon Harris and Owen Murphy in the last government, who were in fact in, in the end saved by Fianna Fáil's confidence and supply deal. Um, 
and I, I don't I don't think that there's a dog on the street that actually believes this is going to pass as a that 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 the vote um of no confidence in Veronica is going to pass. But it's 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 frankly it's a shameless um a shameless point score political point scoring uh stunt on behalf of Sinn Fein. They know full well it's not going to pass, but that's not their aim. Their aim is to damage not only Leo and Fine Gael, but the credibility um, of the entire government as a whole, while, sim- while simultaneously reminding the public of, of what Veracker has done. Uh, and Veracker has described this in, in a statement through uh, as mudslinging. Um, is there a bit of, uh, I suppose what you're getting to there is that there's a bit of demagoguery about all this from Sinn Féin. Um, you know, uh, and what I was going to ask was to, to, to both of you, whether you felt it was a, a justifiable approach for Sinn Féin to take, and, and, and clearly you, you don't think so. But, Ben, I mean, Sinn Féin are really now the main, opposi- the main opposition, if not the only opposition. I mean, we, we have characters like Paul Murphy and Richard Boy Barrett who, once they get their speaking time on big issues like this, they, they will get some, some TV time and coverage. But, I mean, Sinn Féin probably had to come out and go hard at, at Varadkar, didn't they? They probably did. I mean, where whilst I don't agree with it, where if you were sitting in the shoes of, of Sinn Féin and Mary Lou MacDonald, you have Fianna Fáil polling in the mid to high teens. You have the Greens losing members almost as fast as Trump's lead declined the other night in Pennsylvania. And this is this this motion or this motion of no confidence um in Varadkar is kind of a, a rounding off of a, a clean sweep of sorts in, in terms of um the application of political pressure on the governmental parties it's a it's a, it's pure it's it's political opportunism but um i think if the if the governmental parties if the roles were reversed and Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, the greens were sitting in the shoes of Sinn Féin I, I don't think that uh i don't think that any other um approach would have been taken um it's all it also it's conveniently deflects from Sinn Féin's latest embarrassment uh in the north which saw Sinn Féin officials and elective um, and, and elected representatives overlook thousands upon thousands of pounds being dumped into their bank accounts. So, um, yeah, it's convenient timing on that front as well, I suppose. Yeah, but I mean, nevertheless, the, the reputation of the of the Taoiseach, or the former Taoiseach, I should say. Sorry, I'm making the same mistake as everyone now. Uh, is I would say certainly not left in tatters, but it's it's been dealt a blow, but. I suppose what you what you could say is, is that the man on the street and the average the average person on the street probably isn't that upset over this. I mean there is the question of you know Leo's relationship with O'Toole. He's obviously said that he's his friend and O'Toole has has seems to have you know I think he's he's probably used that position and over-egging that position, as Varadkar said, you know, in some of the WhatsApp messages that have come out with O'Toole kind of saying, look at all this stuff that Leo is doing for me. He'll, he'll always back his man. And Taoiseach, the, T- uh, the former Taoiseach has said that uh, he, he doesn't exactly know why he's taking that position on it and that and that stance. Um, but Anya, like we mentioned it there a minute ago, where, where, where do you think that this leaves leaves the former Taoiseach, who will, of course, become the Taoiseach again? Well, to be honest with you, Kieran, I think that Leo 
probably knows to some extent that his voter base don't care about this. And I think he knows that he is pro-business. And at the end of the day, I think owners of SMEs will be more annoyed that Sinn Féin are wasting this time that should be used in the Doyle to prepare for Brexit than to be bothered about this. I think this is really summed up in a tweet I saw this week from Richard Jacob, owner of Idaho Cafe in Cork. And he said, there are two types of people, those who care and worry deeply about Leo Varadkar passing a parcel in the past and those who are self-employed during a pandemic. So I really think Fine Gael's voter base will be more annoyed at Sinn Féin wasting this time. And I think this could really cause some backlash for Sinn Féin because I think a lot of people will be very annoyed that they're wasting this time. And I take it with that comment uh, coming from the business owner that you've just said, you, I'm sure you'll be frequenting uh, that place when, when, whenever they reopen. Uh, I know they'll probably be doing takeaway coffees at the moment, but that's where all we'll have to make that our centrist headquarters or something like that. And when, when, when Ben is eventually back from, uh, from France, that's where we can meet up for our meetings and um, our editorial meetings or something like that. I wanted to also bring up one thing with you, Anya, and we've spoken. Uh, off kind of uh, recordings before about a, a book written by that you actually re recommended to me by Professor Nia Herrigan, who used to be a lecturer in UCC, and she's now uh, up in up in Limerick. In her in her description, she she of the book, she kind of goes through the history of Irish politics and the the dichotomy of we'll say rules and relationships, and how the latter usually takes precedence over the former in that. And th this is not a Galway races tent episode. There's no brown envelopes going on. But is it again, perhaps like a little example of that with, with what we've seen uh, with the leaking of the information? I completely agree. I think what Niamh Howergan wrote about is still very true. I think even if there's no explicit financial gain in this transaction. I think it does show that, I suppose, Sinn Féin have really been playing up, probably exaggerating a little too much, the idea of, oh, it's the politics of who you know, and, you know, it's the old boys club and everything like that. But I suppose it is showing to an extent that the information Matthew O'Toole is getting, he's only getting because, oh, well, you know, they're known by each other in kind of doctor's circles and in this kind of, in the circles of kind of prominent kind of public figures and doctors. And that's the thing. I think she is definitely right, Nia Farragan, in a lot of what she's saying. Absolutely. Well, look, no love for Sinn Féin here, but um, I'm not, I'm not surprised. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to actually, we'll have to actually get someone from Sinn Féin on at some stage. Um, and I'm really actually interested in maybe bringing Nia Farragan on as well. I might get in contact with her during the week and see if we can, see if we can, uh, get her on the show. We will leave park that there for now and we'll go over to France, which is where Ben is currently. And there's been a hell of a lot going on there that maybe some people aren't aware of, of here. Um, following a number of awful recent terrorist attacks, Macron has taken a strong stance from what I see like predominantly around something like freedom of speech and he's taken huge criticism from the hard left, you know, terrorist sympathizers and uh, some heads of state, including Turkey's uh, president uh, Erdogan, who has called for a boycott of, of French uh, products. Ben, I, I want to ask you before we talk about Macron, tell me about public sentiment 
in response to these attacks and i know you're on lockdown at the moment but i'm sure you're you're probably getting some bit of a sense of it and maybe if you could before you even tell me about that if you could just go into maybe a timeline of what's happened in the last couple of weeks with relation to the attacks so in the last well i'll start i'll start my, my starting point here on probably i'll just start from uh, at the beginning of october so at the beginning of october before either of the either the beheading of um the school teacher um, after uh, he had shown a, a caricature of the Prophet Muhammad to a class, um, or the uh, knife attacks that happened um, in Nice, um, Macron launched a, a crackdown on Islamist separatism in France. So he announced plans for strict controls on um, religious and cultural associations and, and a ban on, on homeschooling even, um, with the exception being uh, for health reasons in order to, uh, in, in his own words, uh, defend the Republic and its values and ensure it respects its promises of equality and emancipation. So Macron clearly sees his role as um, being the, the kind of defender of France's traditional of um, secularism, which is the division uh, between the church and the state, which has been a cornerstone of French society since um, being written into law in 1905. But the route being taken in the battle against Islamic separatism in France is very much at odds with France's commitment um, to liberty, in my opinion. So um, the French government um, by, er, in early December is going to pre uh, will present a, a draft law designed um, to firstly, what, what they call here in France, reinforce la cité. So that, that's France's distinctive version of secularism. And secondly, uh, with second name being to consolidate Republican principles. Um, and those proposals are based upon two assumptions. The first of which assumptions is that jihadist terrorism is fueled by the, the spread. We're just losing you there a small bit, Ben. Um, uh, what I'll do is, I, I know Anya, you, you've been following this um, the events recently as well. And, and we'll come back to Ben when he when he restores his Wi-Fi connection there on France. But give me give me your take on recent events. So I think the type of secularism that France are pursuing, it's in conflict with religious liberty. It is not allowing people to practice religion to an extent. When you look at past bans on uh, on different headscarves and other things, I'm not sure if that's the hijab or. If it's the burqa, uh, if it's just the burqa or the hijab as well. Uh, but just to come back to a quote from Macron uh, earlier this week or in on the 2nd of October, I mean. So this was actually before the beheading took place. Macron's crackdown took place before the beheading and before the recent terrorist attacks. So he said, laicite means the neutrality of the state. In no way does it mean the removal of religion from society in the public arena. But I don't think that's happening. I think it is meaning the removal of religion to some extent. And also we must look at Macron's political uh, political ambitions here. He's trying to bring back the vote of the far right, the centre right, those who are more conservative and anti-Muslim in France. That, that vote that Marine Le Pen would have gotten last time because he has an election coming in two years. So I do think we need to look at he has the left on his side to some extent, but he doesn't have the right on his side and he is very much trying to get both. So I do think this is very much motivated by the 2022 election. Yeah, you, you might well be right. And I mean, of course, 
it, it's strange and, and, and maybe that's what he has in mind on you but if there was ever going to be a catalyst you know i'm surprised that it's okay it's eventually come but i mean this has happened so many times over the last five years probably beginning with Charlie Hebdo, which of course was was revolved around the caricature of the prophet uh, on that occasion as well. Ben, I think you might be back with us there. We you were probably you were mid flow there, and I might just go back and ask you about public sentiment in France at the moment in 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 response to this. Yeah, well, as you know, we're locked down, so there there hasn't been much. Uh, Again, kind of getting yourself out and about and interacting with people where your kind of daily uh, bit of exercise or going to the shop or whatever. But from anyone that I've been talking to, um, initially when the the terror attacks happened, there, there was a sort of a, an initial sense of shock, as would be expected. Um, this isn't the first time there that there has been um, Islamic or terrorist attacks. We've seen an we've seen an onslaught of. Uh, um, of extremists, uh, extremist terrorist attacks, start, kind of starting from 2012 onwards. So it's not something. Whilst the whilst the 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 element of of shock and um, deep regret, I suppose, and saddening of the French people is definitely there. It's something that unfortunately they have almost become are, are becoming used to, which is 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 uh, not something that you kind of would like to see, I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that perspective, and and maybe once you once you come out of the lockdown, and you get back out on the street, you'll be you'll be able to understand that sentiment a little bit more. And of course, as things develop further, because you know things things certainly haven't ended yet. I mean, I find it quite interesting in terms of the backlash that he's gotten. He's actually being supported by the likes of Nigel Farage, which probably doesn't do his PR any good uh, on this issue. But I think it's a fairly normal stance to take to say that there's obviously a problem with Islamic fundamentalism and it needs to be addressed. And I don't know how anyone can actually disagree with that. Um, you know, so we'll we'll, we'll see how it, how it develops. But I want to ask you, Ben, in relation to Macron, who I find to be a really interesting character because he is an absolute fanatic of the European Union and would like to see more federalization, deeper integration. And yet at the same time, he is a French patriot, a French nationalist, which in France, nationalism isn't actually a bad word, where whereas it might be uh, in other on other Western countries like the UK here, or or even or especially in the United States, he's a strong believer in the French Republic. Is that something? While you have been in France, the short time that you've been there, that you've realised that French people, whether they're actually left wing or right wing, they're they seem to be all pretty, you know, patriotic about the country. They are definitely extremely and extremely pr uh, a nation that are proud of their of their heritage uh, and patriotic but you talk there about the values of the republic and this is one of the assumptions that the draft law being put forward in december um is based upon you have to kind of ask the questions what what are these specific values like what what are the what are these republican principles that macron is referred to and what would it mean to impose them um on a society that itself is um 
supposed to be really an upholder of the freedom of expression, freedom of opinion and, and beliefs. The val th these values, uh, uh, the, the sort of values of, of the Republic that Macron is kind of referring to, they're not encoded in the law um, of 1905 that established separation between church and state. Um, the, the Republican values that Macron refers to um, are more towards the liberal values of the 1960s, um, I suppose, gender equality, co-education, et cetera, et cetera. Um, over the last two decades, there's been a, a sort of a shift um, and a normalization far more towards um, Islam, or is, or exa Islamic practices being normalized, as Anya's already touched on, um, in everyday French life with the wearing of the hijab, the eating of halal food, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the proposals which have been put forward for the draft law in December would have the effect of reducing the display of, of religious faith, faith not, not only in Islam, but um, in public life in general, uh, which would come at a kind of a detrimental cost really to the um, to French liberal values of of freedom of religion, um, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, etc., etc. So, um, whilst the undesired goal is obviously a good one in that being the reduce of extremism, uh, the negative effects that radicalized Islam has had uh, in France, which has led to obviously terror attacks. Um, this this draft law would bring about an end result. I think could bring about an end result which is the very antithesis of traditional French values of liberty, which are held in such high regard here. Really, really interesting. Uh, I had no idea about that draft legislation, so um, it, it's great to hear it fr from someone that does. And of course, as you say, the big word there is could, uh, and we'll see how things uh, uh, tra travel on from there. And we might come back to you in December on that, Ben. Listen, we, we'll leave it there, guys. Um, Anya, O'Neill and Ben Quigley, th thanks a million for joining me this week and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks a million, Kieran. Cheers. Thanks, Kieran. So that was uh, Anya O'Neill and Ben Quigley there joining me. Yesterday, we're back here live in UC 98.3 FM. I'm with Charlie and I'm with Halisey. Uh Look, we're going to talk about the US election and I was telling the lads there a second ago that I'm kind of doing an Amy Comey Barry on it here. I have nothing written down in front of me because... Like you could talk about this till the cows come home and I just wanted to see what kind of interesting chatter we could get from the two lads. What I might ask you first, Adam, I'll go to you. What are your what were your immediate thoughts on Tuesday, going into Wednesday and following into Thursday? Um, I suppose the immediate thoughts of many others would have been that um, a, a, a Donald Trump victory seemed in, imminent um, uh, on early Wednesday morning. Um, I was never uh, of that opinion, and I thought that it was always likely that Joe Biden was going to be able to sufficiently make up the deficit in states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan and Minnesota. Um, but at the same time, I recognized that we had gotten it wrong in the sense that it was not um, the sort of repudi repudiation of Trump that we thought it might be. Um, that, uh, you know, a lot of Republicans down ballot had done a lot better than Trump had. And there was no blue wave. While Joe Biden rebuilt the blue wall, there was no blue wave. So um, once I 
once it became more obvious that Biden would reign triumphant, I suppose I started thinking in more um, broad terms and came to two primary conclusions, those being that if it hadn't been for um, the emergence of COVID-19 and Trump's handling of it, I think it would have been very likely that Trump would have um, been a successful incumbent and been a two-term president. And secondly, I felt very grateful towards the voters of the Democratic primary, which began not, not, too, um, not too short uh, compared to a year ago today, over in this period a year ago, for electing Joe Biden, um, a moderate, a moderate who promised he could win Pennsylvania, he could win Michigan, he could win Minnesota, in an election when the economy, despite racial tensions, despite the coronavirus, proved to be um, the most important issue to voters uh, in polling. Um, I, I am very grateful to the Democratic voters for picking a candidate that could roughly go toe-to-toe with Donald Trump on um, the issue of the economy. Um, I mean, I was, a, I was a supporter and I was a fan of Bernie Sanders in 2015. I think he's a man of great character. I think it's a laughable proposition to, to um, say that he would have been able to do anywhere near as well as Biden did in convincing voters that he would be able to handle the economy. Um, if I, I'll just finish on the point that if you look at Trump's success in a, in a state like Florida, it was based primarily upon the idea that he was able to convince those many of whom are petrified of um, socialism, Cuban uh, immigrants, for example, that Joe Biden was in fact a socialist of a radical persuasion and was coming, uh, was of the um, the ideal, really, of wanting to bring socialism to America. I wonder um, what would have been the reaction to a Bernie Sanders candidacy uh, in those areas and among those constituents. Mm, mm, interesting, and what well, we we might actually see a, a play out of that because some people will still think that behind the curtain, the squad, as they're kind of know the AOCs in the Democratic Party, will have some bit of a, a hold over Biden, and they might well have done. And we'll talk about, we'll say, the Senate and the House of Representatives in a minute, and how Biden is going to be really limited in actually what he can do. Charlie, when I, I have to say that when. When Florida came out for Trump, as convincingly as it did, I said, Jesus, it looks like he's he's in for another four years here. Um, Adam suggests that, you know, he, he never felt that when you look at Pennsylvania and when you, when you consider the postal votes that were going to be coming in, that how heavily they were going to go for Biden. I mean, all of the postal votes nearly went for Biden, didn't they? Yeah, that was, that was great to see. To see the... Uh fact that Trump was telling his supporters literally not to vote by mail because it's a fraud and then challenged the fact that all the votes by mail were for Biden because his supporters were heeding his advice. Um, but yeah, I was very, very similar to you, Kieran. I woke up in the middle of the night ready to get up and go downstairs and watch the election flow in and I woke up in a dreadful state um, seeing Twitter blowing up, the Betfair exchange having Trump as a massive, massive favourite. Um, 2016 all over again and it made sense to think of it at that time to me it made sense because I thought back to Hillary and I thought do you know is there much difference between Biden and Hillary really I was thinking Democrats have got this entirely wrong do you know Joe Biden status quo Joe um, really worried and then night went on I thought look this isn't going to get any better I'm just going to go back to bed um, but thankfully over the next last few days very long election this uh, over the last few days it has seemed to come good um, thank God mm, and I well, even when I was looking at somewhere like Georgia where Trump was somewhere around 200,000 votes up with about 92% in 
and then the remaining kind of eight percent were were going to come for postal votes. I mean, so Biden essentially won that by about eighty percent um, to to twenty in terms of postal votes, which is just incredible. And I was listening to um, a, an Irish poster, Kevin Cunningham, during the weekend. He was suggesting that if you look at somewhere like Pennsylvania, which is one of the key states uh, nearly every every year or every election. And he was suggesting that Trump going out and encouraging 25,000, 30,000 people to come and join in his um, in his demonstrations as he was canvassing around the place. And it was an area that was really, really badly hit by COVID. And there was a lot of a lot, a lot of a lot of deaths in, in Pennsylvania and your soccer moms and your people who were in between one and the other, I would say, saw that and said, look at this guy. He's encouraging people coming out. And COVID is absolutely running rife through the state. Adam, like I would say that looking at January, the economy was pretty strong. Trump was on for a home run. COVID comes and he loses. Like it was all it was all COVID, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, it was to a large extent. That's actually something we discussed last week here in in states like Wisconsin as well. Um, the uh, the the belief that Trump might have been destined for the White House again is obvious uh, could have been obvious to many or seemed obvious to many on election night um, as we had Joe Biden amass large leads in states like Ohio Florida, North Carolina and others only to see them swallowed up um, because the postal votes were counted um, first in those states uh, and then Trump and his voters who had voted in person on election day swallowed up those leads um, we, it, 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 did, it did seem to be a cause for concern however when we went up north um, to the states where uh, postal voting is done the opposite way round and counted last it seemed as though a red mirage um, had uh, appeared um, a red mirage had appeared in the sense that Joe or Donald Trump amassed large um, leads only for Joe Biden and uh, large numbers of postal votes to um, to uh, end up uh, swinging it. So the question is asked um, amongst Trump, Trump supporters: How did Biden manage to win uh, the the? Uh, postal votes so massively uh, as Trump put it himself how were postal votes so powerful in their percentage and destruction um, almost poetic um, I think <laughs> almost yeah so uh, I think that um I mean, there's there's talk about how like the GOP observers weren't allowed to look at uh, or to observe um, votes in Pennsylvania, and uh, there is talk about ballots being set fire to in Virginia, and I think that ultimately it kind of comes down to um, perspectives, and there's two per- uh, dominant perspectives in 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 life in general, but also in this in this particular election, and that is those who kind of look at these instances of misinformation and think, you know, it's more likely to be a human error or a typo or misinformation than it is to be general corruption, the devastation of US democracy and um, chaos to emerge. And I think that most people have recognized that it's as simple as Joe Biden voters voted by post, um, Donald Trump voters turned up on election day, and uh, it's not some sort of grand conspiracy to keep uh, Donald Trump out of the White House. Mm, and it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because obviously he's he's going to be sitting in the White House for the next couple of months. Um, do you expect a concession, Charlie? No. I mean, this is a guy who hates losing, and we know that he hates losing. Is he is he going to go down fighting, or is it going to go through the courts? And I mean, the other thing is, is that 
okay, look, he, he will eventually be dragged out of the White House kicking and screaming. What does he do then? Like, he's going to stay on Twitter. I reckon he's going to probably try and set up meetings with world leaders by himself, you know? And he runs again in 2024. I think that's that's oh, a God. massive thing for me anyway to take away from this election. Once the dust has settled and everybody comes to terms with the fact that Biden has won, the fact still remains, and we've said it already here, that this election was not a repudiation of Trump. The people who voted for Trump were Trump supporters. The people who voted for Biden, I know this may not make sense, but weren't necessarily vocal Biden supporters. They voted for him because he was the least worst. In 2024, it's almost like this, the thing I'm taking away from this is, who is the heir to the throne of Trumpism? It's not Republicanism anymore. It's gone. That's, it's Trump, Republicanism in America has been failing for 12 years. We saw it rejected in 2008 by McCain, and we saw it rejected in 2012 with Romney, and we saw it rejected in 2016 with Trump getting in. So mm. what we're going to have here now is Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, um, maybe Donald Jr., maybe Donald again himself. Or that's 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 yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. It's interesting like, you say that because someone said to me the other day, "Oh, I reckon Mike Pence will run," and I said, "Jesus, like as you said, the people that voted for Trump voted for Trump." And the brand, I would say. Uh, I think what's really interesting, and you, you mentioned the dust settling, like you have to look at the numbers. The only category that Trump went down in in terms of percentage of voters was white men. Everything else went up. Black women, black men, Latinos, Asians, everything went up. And I think that's something that the Democratic Party are going to have to look at seriously. Yeah, well, I mean... There is a tendency to agree with that um, position, but also there's definitely the capacity for it to be overstated. At the end of the day, we're looking at a, a popular vote victory here um, in the region of four, five, maybe six million. Uh, Joe Biden will have received the most votes for a presidential candidate ever, far outweighing those that was uh, received by Barack Obama in 2008. And um, the Electoral College will culminate in a 306 point um, victory for Joe Biden. Um, funnily enough, the exact same amount of Electoral College votes that were received by Donald Trump in 2016 when we said that he'd won in a massive landslide. So, um, I mean, there is definitely the capacity to overstate um, the, uh, the, the lack of success that the Biden campaign experienced when compared to the expectations that were around. An interesting point when we're talking about the future of the GOP is that you're now looking at a party that has lost the popular vote um, the, in seven of the last eight elections. Um, George Bush lost it once, John McCain lost it, Mitt Romney lost it, and Donald Trump has lost it twice. So, you you know, it's, it, I, my worry for the GOP is that you're now facing, um, I think it was Ezra Klein pointed out, uh, a party who has learned to win power um, and achieve power without actually winning the most um, the most amount of votes. That, I mean, has obviously, the ten that, that, that could create a situation where um, it, it, became, it, it becomes in the best interest of Republicans to suppress um, votes and that that would actually be the, the kind of best option for the party, not sort of rediscovering their own identity, not sort of engaging in any fundamental um, kind of... Uh, kind of uh, rejuvenation of the party, its personnel, its policy, but rather trying to find um, some very technical ways of suppressing voters because we find there's a massive correlation between turnout and democratic success. Yeah, but the, the, it's always been in Republicans' best interest to suppress the vote. The people who have come out and 
use their voice in like your John Kasich's, your Mitt Romney's to a certain extent. They've coming out against Trump because he challenged the whole GOP status quo. Republicans have always had a vested interest in, to, in suppressing um, the popular vote. That's not going to change anytime soon. I don't think that's going to change with how we're going to see the GOP progress now, but surely it has to. They need to revolutionise their own party if they're going to see any success in the next yeah well I mean there's a reason why um, Lindsey Graham came out yesterday and said that the reason why he wants to fight these recounts and legal battles is because he doesn't think they'll ever be a Republican president again if this is to go by um, people are amazed by the turnout that happened this time and because of COVID there was a lot of technical structures put in place to encourage turnout you could, va- you could vote by post you could vote a number of weeks in advance in person you could vote in person on election day and so these people firmly believe believe that when turnout is as high as it was this time, if that is to go forward, um, that it, it spells doom for, for the Republican Party. And you know what? They mightn't be wrong. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think it spells maybe trouble for other countries as well. You know, if you look at the Conservatives um, other conservative governments and parties around the world. I mean, the main thing from, if you talk about, let's say, reducing the voting age, you know, that's what, that's something that all kind of traditional conservative parties are against because they know that if they, by increasing the, the electorate with a, with a, a youth skew, that they're going to lose out on votes. Um, and there was a stat, a pretty incredible stat, that not one of the 300 and how many odd conservative MPs that were elected would have been elected if voting was purely down to under 30s in the UK, which is just crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So we'll we'll have to see how that goes. I mentioned um, the House of Representatives and the Senate a while ago, and we can we can dress up this victory, and everyone is is fairly delighted that Biden has won. But I mean, it was a pretty shocking election for the Democrats. I thought you know because they they expected to win seats in the House by 10 to 15. It looks like they're losing about 10. They thought that they'd overturned the Senate and it looks like they haven't. So, I mean, Joe Biden is going to have one arm completely tied behind his back for the next four years. Yeah, well, I suppose what we've witnessed is almost the genius of American democracy in the sense that we have seen a partial repudiation of Trump and people saying that um, we don't want Trump to be the next president. A majority of Americans, a clear majority of Americans saying that, but at the same time, um, handing the GOP victories down ballot in the House and the Senate. And so what we're going to see post-January 20th is... um, Will Joe Biden be able to live up to his uh, his kind of expectations in the sense that Joe Biden put um, bipartisanship and compromise as key pillars of his campaign? He wasn't particularly idealistic. He wasn't particularly aspirational. He says, I know how to get stuff done. I have forged the relationships internationally and domestically um, over the past 40 years to prove that I can get stuff done. Well, that's about to be put to the test very soon because unless he can get along with Mitch McConnell in the Senate and unless he can get along with Kevin McCarthy in the House... Um, it's very unlikely that anything is going to be achieved, never mind that that which the um, the kind of more progressive wing of the Democratic Party would like to see achieved, or the moderate um, either. It's really interesting. I was listening to a, an economist who was in Clinton's administration today, and she was saying that Biden is literally the perfect president for this situation because he's been someone over the last 40 years that has crossed the aisle and tried to speak to Republicans quite a bit. Uh, And I don't know how well that's going to go down with 
the AOCs of this world because there's an, going to be an awful lot of compromises have to be are going to have to be made. Um, Charlie, what, what's your take on, we'll say, moving away from the, the presidential side of things, but the how the, the campaign went in terms of the House and the Senate for the Democrats? Went badly. Um, Joni Urs keeping Iowa, Lindsey Graham still there, Susan Collins still there. These were um, huge amount of fundraisers for Democrats where they were going to target these seats, and it didn't work. And as a result, um, Joe Biden is going to be remembered as a president who beat Donald Trump, and whatever he can do foreign policy-wise, because domestically, it's not going to be much. Um, like he's obviously going to extend the olive branch back to the EU. We will see how Brexit goes now. We know avoid all of his Irish ties to Mayo and so on and so forth. But um, you've talking about crossing the island and stuff. Joe Biden made his career crossing the aisle with the likes of the John McCain's and with the likes of you know the George Bushes of this world. The Ted Cruz's, the Lindsey Graham's, are not cut from the same cloth as those Republicans. Spot on. It'll be straight rejection because he is a Democrat. There's not going to be any olive branches in domestic in, in the Senate. It's going to be complete rejection, lame duck presidency, and we better all just go, start gearing up again for 2024 and seeing if a Beto O'Rourke or a Pete Buttigieg or even an AOC can come through and pick up the mantle of what it is. Nothing will happen domestically in America. Yeah, I... I agree um, wholeheartedly uh, Biden is kind of reminiscing about a time when bipartisanship was far more possible. It wasn't seen as possible in America back then, it was seen as probable um, these days with an eye to 2024, the likes of Hawley uh, Cruz and others aren't going to be interested in bipartisanship because polarisation is what sells um, you know, there's there's something very appealing if you're a left winger about saying uh, a candidate saying, "Look, uh, we hate the other side. The other side are awful people." And uh, the the same if you're a right winger. Um, polarization is what sells in in this time of uncertainty, uh, in this time of crisis, particularly with COVID and economically. So I don't. I, I I would like to think that there will be a lot of bipartisanship in the upcoming presidency. I certainly wouldn't expect it. Mm, and I mean, usually for for a president coming in, they always target the kind of first hundred days, mm. those those first three or four months, uh, and in th in in six months' time, we could still be in this pandemic. We could still be in some sort of a lockdown. We just have no idea how things are going to develop. Ironically, I saw uh, I think a, a tweet from Donald Trump Jr. today saying that Pfizer's had uh, had kept this announcement that they basically had the trial done and that 90% of the vaccine was effective um, so that they can probably claim some big boost to the uh, the Biden economy <laughs> or something like that in, in a couple of uh, in a couple of months time and it's really interesting as well in terms of Brexit and we saw uh, Biden's response to a BBC journalist a a asking for a, a couple of minutes and he was kind of saying you know BBC I'm Irish you know and I like some people thought that was Biden saying that he hates the UK and that's exactly what Farage, Nigel Farage said. Oh, poor Nigel was very triggered um, because his his buddy is after losing. Um, I'll leave the last word to you for now, Charlie. What's, what's going to happen, we'll say, in the next couple of weeks? We know that there's going to have to be recounts made, but I mean, it's a done deal at this stage. Yeah, it is. The, Trump has come out of this looking utterly pathetic. Um, it is done. He won't concede, but hopefully his voice will get quieter and quieter and he'll eventually go into that good night with a whimper.
Mm-hmm. Adam? Yeah, we're going to see um, more political theatre. Uh, Donald Trump, his adult sons and his surrogates all know that this is over. Um, what they are now trying to do is cast doubt upon the election in the hope of delegitimizing um, the success of Biden uh, in this election. Um, it's going to be a very sad legacy as we look back on Donald Trump, a one-term president who lost the popular vote twice. Mm, and it'll be interesting to see how many other rats jump from the ship in the next couple of days. Um, there's a, there's already been a, a couple. Obviously, Mitt Romney was one of the first people to come out, and Jeb Bush, and uh, and all those kind of characters. Um, last week, I played you out with <laughs> with a song that some people thought meant that I was supporting Trump. I wasn't. So what I said today is I I, I pick maybe a uniting song. So uh, we're, we're going to finish uh, with that. Thanks a million for coming in, lads, and we will see you soon. Cheers, Karen. Thanks, Karen. Hot August night and the leaves hanging down and the grass on the ground smelling sweet. Take my hand.